Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. In this episode, Philip shares his knowledge with information for building a better investment strategy. And now your host, here's Philip. Back again for another episode. Hey, I did an interesting book read. Anybody who's interested in, in, in reading books, I love history. I love specifically history in the context of money, business, and black history. But I read a book called 5,000 Years or Debt, the First 5,000 Years, and it basically went through the first 5,000 years of money and credit all the way to Mesopotamia to current, and it was eye-opening. It was a lot of the stuff, since I am a nerd, and I've read I've read The Ascent of Money and a bunch of other history and money books, but this came at it from a different angle, telling similar stories and even giving some history that I'd never heard before, but in the period of time that we're in right now with what's going on with the unprecedented amount of debt and money printing in the world, I think it might be good for you to check out if you're interested in that kind of stuff and knowing uh, what's going on. I, I will give the caveat, if you read the book, like the actual physical book is long, and if you do Audible like I did where the audio book was 17 hours, but I didn't feel like binge watching the shows. It's, it's weird now that we've been in quarantine for so long. I don't want to binge watch it. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm really wasting my life. So I'm working out more. I'm reading more. I'm binge listening to books. I just don't want to. Or, and if I'm not doing that, I'm spending time playing with the boys, playing video games, or wrestling, or going outside. So you know, that's the positive out of all of this. Is I think I'm getting healthier and getting smarter and spending more time. So let's get into this episode. And this is going to be a different type of episode. Instead of doing questions, I'm really going to walk you through more detailed solid ways to build an investment strategy. Uh, and so we'll we'll have the different topics. I'm going to label each topic, same as I do a question, but it's not going to really be in the form of a question. This is more information for building a good investment strategy. First topic, five reasons people don't have enough money in retirement or won't have enough money in retirement. First reason is they listen to media for their investment strategy. And give you context, I have been doing this for 14 years now, so I lived through a couple of booms and bust cycles in my short period of time. And throughout the time, we also had the rise of social media. And so all of us can now see what financial advisors we were taught and we've observed is the media effect on investment decisions is net negative. Because just like on social media, what sells is negativity. What people want to pay attention to for whatever reason we we crazy humans like it. We pay attention to like negativity and negativity sells. And you got to understand the media is not in the business of making you money as in, in, in your investments. They're not in the business of quote unquote really even considering whether they're making your life better or worse. They're, they're neutral on that. They're in the business of getting money from advertisers and to get money from advertisers, they have to have eyeballs, whether it's on the internet or on TV. And since they know, and you know now because you've been on social media, that negativity is what gets eyeballs and what gets attention, then they want to sell the most negative. It is not, I'm not saying the media is bad. I'm not bashing the media. I'm just saying human nature, right? If you if you can track incentives of people, then you can understand why they do what they do and you can make better decisions. And so the media, their, their programming, even the shows that everybody likes, and I think Jim Cramer is a really smart guy. You know, if you look at his background and 
what he's doing. He's a smart guy, but even his show is built not really to make you money, just to entertain you and get you excited. And it's what I call uh, quote unquote infotainment. And so just understanding that the media's not there to make you money. And so if you're looking, if you're getting ideas from websites or quote unquote gurus on the media, and you're hearing them talk about all this negative news to get you tuned in, don't let that affect your investment decisions because that has consistently proven to be a bad deal. Second reason, lotto ticket thinking. Lotto ticket thinking is we're looking for tips, hunches, shortcuts. I can't tell you how many people have been saying, hey, my you know, my coworker said that they know somebody who works at this company and this is a new drug coming out. Or I literally had a guy who doesn't know what he's doing and he has a following on social media that, that, that looks at his investment classes and he was, he was telling me about, hey, I believe in this company and this is what they're doing right now and nobody knows it's my uncle works there. And so he, you know, he, he kind of he told me whatever, whatever. And I say, bro, listen, you do understand what, first of all, if what you're about to tell me is true, don't tell me because I consider inside trading. But you do understand like that your uncle is not the CEO, so he probably doesn't have any information that is not available to the open market. And even if it was, it's not super smart to trade on that. Not because it's illegal, because it's probably going to be wrong. You're looking for a shortcut to make some money on your investments. And so people, and let me explain what lotto ticket thinking is. Lotto ticket thinking, and I said it once before in the podcast, is applying limited effort or money or resources to get a big outcome. It's why Vegas was built. It's why the Texas lottery pays billions of dollars of jackpots a year. It's basically another tax on people who have a loud ticket type thinking because net net over time, the reason why you don't see anybody say, oh, I'm a self-made lottery ticket scratcher. Or I'm a self-made, you know, Vegas gambler. You don't have a whole lot of self-made. By the way, people, people might say, Philip, there are professional gamble players. Listen, these people make a lot of money, more money on like endorsements because the casinos, the ones they can really play, <laughs> they're not going to let them in consistently and take money from them. The odds are they're going to put the odds in the favor of the casino. And so lotto ticket thinking, looking for tips and hunches is the fastest way to the poorhouse. Third reason, false prophets. People listen to false prophets. This, this might sound similar to what I said in the media, but... It's, it's a little bit different because what people are looking for, whether it's the media that they're watching or talking to a financial advisor or talking to somebody else who's an investor, they always ask, well, what do you think the market's going to do? And and I'm asked that a lot and I always say, listen, I don't know what the market's going to do. I have my opinion. It's like I have my opinion that the Houston Rockets are going to win the championship every single year and I got my reasons why I think the odds are high. And my guess is just as good as yours, Right. And so nobody knows the future. As a matter of fact, if you listen closely to the great investors, the, the Warren Buffetts, the Ray Dalio, the Stanley Druckenmillers, the consistent guys who are great investors, they even tell you that nobody knows the future. And you don't have to. We go to carnivals and we laugh at people who go to fortune tellers. We laugh at them. But then we think that our financial advisor or this guru can tell the future. Nobody knows the future. But the cool part is you don't have to to make money in the markets. Third reason is most people don't realize the most important skill in investing. The most important skill in investing is having emotional intelligence, managing your emotions through the up and down movements of the market. And people don't believe me, but I believe it's true. If all you did was went and bought 
a low cost ETF, you know, let's say from Vanguard or BlackRock, and they have an ETF where they have like a like an aggressive strategy, or you can do a target date retirement fund set on your retirement date. If you bought that and you left it alone and you didn't make any changes, I really, really believe that you would outperform most other investors uh, over time because they have a strategy and having a strategy is more important. The problem is I actually don't think most investors would actually realize the return of the fund because of emotions. When there's a early on after the market crashes, there's a little bit of optimism and the investors who are not investing with emotion start putting money to work and the market goes up and that goes on for a period of time. And after everybody else who was nervous realized that there was some money being made, then they start getting in a little bit and time passes and then they say, oh man, look, we're going to get left behind. And you enter a period of elation, right? People are euphoric. So let me give you like a real example. So 2009, 2010, 2011, 12 was the optimistic period of the last cycle. Then you got to a period of elation where folks were just, or euphoria, whatever you want to call it, where you had everybody who popped up on the internet with stock trading courses and all that stuff. And you had the TV shows come out again and people began to try to, they, they got the loud ticket mentality and they wanted to apply a little bit of money to make a lot. So they would chase what was hot recently. So in 2015, 2014, it was chasing energy, uh, and that had already, that peaked, and they lost with that. Then they traded, then they chased gold, right? And that peaked and it dropped with that. They chased Bitcoin the next year in 17, and we know how that played out. And then they chased cannabis stocks, and we know how that played out. And so, and and, and now the next stage after the elation period is nervous period because the market drops a little bit, people get punched in the gut, they get a little bit of nervous. But they're not at overblown fearfulness. So that's that's similar to where we are right now. And then it becomes a point where there's just mass fear, right? And maybe we're at the fear phase now for some people, but there there comes a point in a bear market where more uncertainty happens and people just get fearful and everybody wants to go to cash and then they sit out and then we set, we set the process over and over and over again. But what they don't do is going back to what I've said before, the person who already has the right investment, so that an example it might be the portfolio, their investment advisor set up for them that's well diversified, or it could be one of these simple ETFs that I think will be a lot of investments. Even if you have it, you still have to manage your emotions through the process. You have to not get caught up in the fear and stay investing. And then you have to not get caught up in the gym conversations or the country club conversations or the golf conversations where your friends are making all this money in these speculative bubbles and and not get caught up in it. Because I still don't know anybody who started investing in in oil and gas stocks in that bubble period that made money. Like the people that were chasing it, the oil, then the gold, then the Bitcoin and the cannabis stocks, all the ones that were asking me all those questions, none of them made any money in it because they were chasing bubbles. You got to managing your emotions is the most important part because finally investment strategy is easy. There's plenty of great opportunities and offers out there to do that. And the last reason people don't have enough money in retirement is they focus too much on selection and timing. And again, this this all might sound similar, but this is a little nuance on the same point. I'm still on the same point. But selection and timing is thinking that they have to select the best investments and they have to be able to time the market, and you don't. Relying on selection and timing is a lot like building an NBA franchise with the hopes of drafting LeBron James every year. That's luck, first of all. And you don't need to. I prefer to have a 
Greg Popovich type model, or if you're a football person, you know, college level is Nick Saban, NFL level it's Bill Belichick. But you have a system, right? You have a process, and then you just apply your process in the market cycle. And so you don't need to rely on selection and timing. You just need to have a really good investment process for how you choose investments. And we'll go through that in the next steps, but not focusing on selection and timing and having a process. And so the start of having a process is you need to understand the big picture. Get out the minutia and understand the big picture, right? So let's say you want to do the longer term. You're saying, hey, Philip, I don't mind doing like the 40-year time frame type investing where I just buy and hold. Well, fine. Go get one of them strategies I was telling you about, one of them target date retirement fund strategies or one of those aggressive moderate conservative strategies from a low-cost mutual fund company and buy that and leave it alone. If you want something that's more of a tactical approach, right, then you want to understand the big picture economy and, and what's going on. Because basically, you have, just like we have four seasons, you have in the in four seasons in the climate, you have four seasons in the economy. You have a period of growth rising, and I'm talking global, global growth rising, global growth slowing, inflation rising, inflation slowing. And in, in different environments, different asset classes historically have performed well, right? In a fast growing environment, you have precious metals like gold, silver, commodities, uh, and stocks do well, specifically value stocks and small cap stocks. In a slow growing, a slower growing environment, global environment, you have things like large cap stocks doing better, growth stocks, specifically U.S. because we're the reserve currency country for a whole lot of reasons. Um, you also have treasury bonds, and I, and I said that wrong. I'm speaking um, lower inflation. So in a lower inflation environment, not a lower growth environment, lower inflation, you have large company stocks, U.S. stocks that do well, growth stocks that do well. In a slow growth environment, you have treasury bonds and cash that do well. Uh, that's Think of that like a recession. And then in an environment where inflation is increasing, you have gold and commodities that do well. In, in general, so those, those are the ones that historically you look back in all those environments, they, they have done well. And so if you can assess the environment uh, that we're in, you don't have to stock pick because from 2000, 2007, when we were, when we were in a period of time where global growth was, was high, if you own emerging market stocks, which you can buy a mutual fund for that, and if you own small cap value stocks, you killed it if you assess the environment. And notice I didn't say December 2003 to January 2004. I didn't say a month. I said from 2000 to 2007 because these economic periods last multiple years. So you don't need to be early. You just need to be able to assess the trend and position accordingly. Uh, which is the big picture. You're not like the amateur investors who are focused on selection and timing. You're saying, what's the big picture? And again, I'm not saying the buy and hold, which is a good strategy too. I'm saying if you're saying, I just want to be tactical. If you want to be tactical, look at the economic environment and then position accordingly. And you don't have to be fancy and time the market and select the quote unquote best investments. You have a strategy that you, you have a portfolio and a strategy based on the environment and you allocate your money accordingly. So that's part one, five reasons people won't have enough money in retirement. Let's go to the next one, the best economic indicator. So on the last one, I talked about being able to assess the economy and what's going on for the big picture. And this is the best economic indicator because a lot of people will listen to jobs report, unemployment report. They look at country GDP, 
and all this stuff that's a lagging indicator because once the information comes out, it's already been priced in for the most part. And let me give an example. Like the market is just a bunch of people looking at numbers, crunching numbers on economic information and company financials and coming up with a price. So the reason why stock market goes up and down throughout the day, as the new information comes out, the new price is being reflected by the collective number crunching. And the collective is extremely smart. As a matter of fact, an example was done where there was these jelly beans set out in a jar and everybody had to guess how many jelly beans were in it. It's been done multiple times. There's a lot of people who were making the guess. And this one particular one, I think the guesses were somewhere between like 400 and 5,000 was like the, the, the gaps and range of guesses. And the actual group's guess was almost spot on to the amount in there. I'm, I'm making up a number, but let's say the guesses, the, the average guess was like 1,653. And the jelly bean actually had like 1,600 jelly beans in it. So it was really close to, you know, the actual amount of jelly beans when you average out the guesses. And that's what's happening in the market every single day. And so the best economic indicator, going back to why you don't have to predict the future, is the market will tell you. The market will tell you what's happening with the economy. You just got to know what, you know, what you're looking at. So again, going back to the last one where I said you had the four economic pictures, if you just go and you looked at the market today and you said, okay... Let me look at all the major asset classes and and I'll simplify it for you. You can there's a lot of them you can look at, but I'm giving you the oversimplified version. You can look at, you know, gold, treasury bonds, US Treasury bonds to be specific. You can look at the US stock market, you can look at emerging market, stock market index, you can look at the Europe stock market index and Japan stock market index, and you can look at the commodity index. You can look at small cap and large cap stocks in the US. You can look at value and growth stocks. So you you look at all those. And then you say, all right, like over the last, you can look at 12 months or two years or three years, look at all of them, but get a feel for, and let me keep it simple. Just look at 12 months. I'm going to keep it super simple. I'm not going to complicate it. Look at 12 months and say, hey, which ones are relative, have relatively done better over the last 12 months? And if you did that today, you would see that gold and long-term government bonds um, have done the best. And then you go to your little deal and you say, Oh, let me look at the, you know, the growth chart, you know, what, what does well in high growth environment, what does well in low growth. And you'll see, well, man, what it's saying is we're in a period of like slow growth and we're in a period of relative high inflation. And then you'd say, OK, well, that actually makes sense because the governments are printing money that's out of thin air, which is inflationary. Right. And like we're in a recession. And, and by the way, the market didn't just say that the, the market showed that three, four weeks ago. And maybe even longer. I don't want to like get into the minutia of time frames and all that, but I'm just I'm giving I'm teaching for for purposes of how this works. But if you look at the market, and I'm not saying don't just I'm just not saying I'm not saying look only at this, but I'm saying the market will give you a really good indicator of what's going on with the global and even local economy. Because you can do it for the U.S. economy. You can look at all these for Japan economy. You can look at it for global. But you look at it and you, the market will give you a lot of information about what's going on uh, in the economy because the market is going to reflect or the market is projecting out the numbers for in the future, meaning when information comes out. So let, let me, I'm, I'm trying to keep this super simple. Let's say some bad news comes out and you think, oh man, that should crash the market today. And the market doesn't crash, right? The reason why that happens a lot is because the market already priced it in, right? The market priced in. 
the, the market crashed like really bad three weeks ago, four weeks ago. So all this bad news is coming out. It was already priced in. That's why it dropped a few weeks back. They already priced this stuff in. So as it's coming out, they're like, oh, oh, the market already knew that. It already priced it in. The market is is smart, right? And maybe that's because there's people that are trading on information and sharing information that shouldn't know. I mean, not probably. I mean, that's what it is. You know, human beings were terrible at keeping secrets, you know. And so information is is getting out that shouldn't get out. But the market um, gives you that in advance. And so if some bad news comes out and the market drops that we previously didn't know, that means the market didn't know that, but they reprice it real quick. But most of the time, the market, and, and again, going back to 2009, the market did not come out of a, it had not technically came out of a recession in March uh, 09 when the market took off, but it, it had already like priced in the most negative stuff. And it was like, cool, like we should be going on, we should be recovering pretty soon. And it was early, but the numbers came out. And things well. So the market is great at pricing information. Use the market, listen to the market. Um, you you want to pair that with your understanding of economics, which is going back to what I said in the very beginning of the podcast. The reason why I like to read economic history is to say, hey, not just in 2000, but with this stuff, was this stuff true 5,000 years ago? Was this stuff true 2,000 years ago? Because people don't change. There, there have been markets forever. There have been commodities for, you know, for a long time. Um, there have been stocks for four or five hundred years, you know, bonds for a long period of time. And so you can look at the interaction between different assets and growth and inflation and the same rules apply. And so it gives you confidence when you when you have your investment strategy if you've done the historic work. So that's part two. Part three, diversification. Let's assume that you master the first part I mentioned where you manage your emotions, you don't let the media manage your emotions, and you focus on the big picture to build your strategy. And then number two, you have a really good economic indicator using the markets and other things. You might get to a point to where you get a little confident and you say, man, I can see where we are. So let me just go ahead and bet big on this one specific area that I think does the best in this environment. That is actually a, not a good thing. That's you know going back to managing your emotions the markets are a, prob- a game of probabilities, and probabilities by nature means it's not 100% right. There's no guarantees in probabilities. You're trying to say, hey, am I more right than more wrong? And so when you're doing this, you want to still have a well-diversified portfolio of basically globally everything for the most part or a wide variety of, of asset classes that, that may be in season or may be out of season because, you know, what if you're wrong? Or what if it takes longer than what you think for the, for things to play out? Or what if the market changes their view because of some information that we don't really know about um, and it does it quick? So you want to you wanna have a diversified portfolio in case things are wrong or for those other reasons. But it still means that you can say, hey, if I got the season right, I'm going to put more money than normal in the assets that do right during this season than just being equal money for, for, for all the different seasons. And so that that's why diversification is important. Ba- diversification, by the way, you know, reversing diversification is if you only, if you said, hey, I got things right, I got the season, and I'm only going to buy like two stocks that are the best companies, best position to do well in this season. And if you're right, you can make a crazy amount of money. Like you can get stupidly rich. But if you're wrong, like you can go broke because they, they can go to zero, right? And if you want to apply leverage, which is borrowing money because you really think you're right, 
then not only can you go broke, you can owe money <laughs> when your money goes to to zero. And so diversification basically is a bargain with the universe, right? It's saying, hey, I'm not going to get killed, but I'm not going to make a killing. And if you go back to the context of what you're really doing in investing is creating an income that you can live off of for as long as you do, then you say, okay, what is the return that I need to make that happen based on what I have and what I'm saving in a realistic time frame? And the goal should be just to meet that return. You don't need to have a pissing match with everybody to try to earn the best return every single year. You need to earn the return you need to to reach your goals, but do it in a way that has a high probability of working out. And that's what investing is. Next part, start with a plan. Y'all see how I'm layering this and stacking this? So you do this and then you want to have a plan. So you want to create a financial plan which spells out all the things you need, how much you need, what your time frame, what your current resources are, how much you can invest. And then you want to figure out do I want an aggressive portfolio, a moderate one, or a conservative one? And that's dictated by your plan. So, for example, if you're 22, you can likely afford to be aggressive because you have more time until you are in a position to meet your goal. And I'm assuming your goal is creating a retirement income. Uh, if you're closer to retirement, you know maybe you um, want something more moderate or conservative. And so your plan will dictate the allocation, aggressive, moderate, or conservative which basically is what's my mix of stocks and bonds, right? What's my mix of investments that that are highly uncertain in the short term and my mix of investments that are pretty certain in the short term? But you got to have a plan to do that. Fifth part, how the government steals our money. Yeah, I like this one. I titled it this way on purpose because when you're doing a plan, there's a lot of people who are saying now, because we're in the nervous to fear phase, they're saying, Philip, I just want to keep my money safe. You know, I just want to keep my money safe. And as I mentioned, safety is an illusion because putting money in cash or all in bonds, yeah, they they come with a guarantee, right? They come with a guarantee of a certain amount of interest. But that doesn't mean it's safe because if you go back through history and you look at governments and what they do, right? And let's go far back, right? This, this is why people like mafia movies and they don't really understand why because it's how humans work in a power control. So you would have a person with an army that would go take over a land and, and, and they, they take over all the loot and all the gold and everything and silver that was over there and all that stuff. And people would say, well, man, why wouldn't they just take all the loot and just go to the next part? Some of them did, but the smart ones would say, now, you know what? We're going to protect the gold, but we're going to create our own coins, give it to the people and um, have them pay us a tax so we can pay these warriors that we're using to conquest new lands, right? Because Paying the warriors was the only way they could continue to maintain power, and they couldn't just take the gold and give it to all the warriors because that 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 just for a lot of reasons it wouldn't work out in the long term. They had to park the money somewhere and create an income from the people so they can pay, you know, keep some of it, pay some of the warriors, and let the people continue to produce and grow the income so it can continue to increase over time, which is what economics does. And I don't again, I don't want to make a long economic history, but just understand like early on, like governments were there to enforce the rules. But you had to pay a tax to stay protected. And then they would go fight other wars. They got to pay the warriors. So it's a balance between like money, the government, and the military to maintain the power. Like look at, you know, look at America right now. The reason why we got bases everywhere is we're, you know, we're printing all this money. If we don't continue to be strong, man, our money is worthless, right? Because it's not, it's not gold-backed anymore. It's really based on our military power and somewhat our economy, really our military power. And, and again, this, this may sound super 
conspiracy theories, but I'm just, I'm just speaking facts about like money because money is nothing. It's just trust, right? It's just it's a piece of paper. It's trust. And so what I'm going with that is if you look at throughout history, since this happens and the governments keep growing and growing and growing and, and things can't grow to the sky, like nothing grows to the sky, it always crumbles. There becomes a point where it becomes unsustainable, right? America was started because the UK or British empire that kept expanding they kept raising taxes to pay for their wars. And America finally said, man, we're through with this. We're fed up. Like, no, let's throw your tea off the boats. We're not paying taxes. And we're going to take this colony and territory, right? And that kind of thing played out over and over and over and over again throughout history. Because at some point, governments get too big, too confiscatory, and taxes get crazy. And people know that part of history, right? The part of history they don't know, the, the taxes we know. We know to not love taxes, Right. But what we don't know is to is, is the inflation part, because what what happens in there is what governments would do to raise more money is they would back in the day when they use coins, right? They would say, "Hey, listen, um, we don't have enough to pay for everything, so we're gonna create more money by everybody turning their gold coins. We're gonna mix it with some less valuable metal and redistribute them back out because we want to. We need to have more coins, and that was deflating the currency, and so." What it did was it put more money out there, which put upward pressures on on prices. And I am unintentionally going nerd, but in the context of this, just stick with me for two more seconds. That was devaluing the currency on purpose so that they can pay for more than something needed to pay for. It's no different than us printing money right now. So if you look at the history of governments, when they when they inflate money, it causes the cost of goods to go up over time. If you really want to get bored and look at economics, as we innovate and we do more technology and we get better at what we do, that brings prices down. So you're, so you're like, well, man, if we've been innovating a, a lot, why are prices you know, as a whole going up? It's because of inflation. It's because governments keep, they have an insatiable appetite for power. And in order to maintain it, they have to keep spending more money on lots of different things. And that causes prices to go up, even when we're having technology revolutions. And so what does that really mean to your money? If you sat down and you did the math and you said, okay, let me look at over time, and I, and I went to a website, I went to Vanguard's website, and they have like these historic portfolios, 100% bonds, 100% stocks, everything in between from 1926 to 2018. And you can go in there and you can say, all right, what was the worst losing period of the portfolio over time? What was the average return? 100% stock portfolio was like 10% a year. So I put that into a spreadsheet. And I said, what was 100% bond portfolio? The safe option. And it was like 5.6%. So I said, cool. And then I said, okay, let me assume that somebody's in a after deductions and everything. They're in a 20% tax bracket. So I said, okay, what's the after tax return of somebody who invested in 100% stock portfolio and 100% bond? And then I said, okay, also inflation over that period of time was something like 3%. And so I plugged that number in. And so then I said, okay, now what is the after-tax, after-inflation purchasing power of the money? Because my whole point for going through that is what's important is not returns. What's important is what you can buy with your money. Because inflation, if it's going to increase the price of goods when it shouldn't, then that means if you don't earn anything on it, then your money can't buy as many goods in the future if you don't earn enough. And so as an investor, if you're trying to create an income that grows to keep pace with the cost of living over time, as long as you live, 
you're in, you're more interested in purchasing power than you are in protecting principal in the short term. And so when I did the math, the rate of return difference was was huge. And and I you'll you'll email me. I I can actually send you the the actual spreadsheet that I'm reading from right here. But the net real return, so after taxes, after inflation, was 1.24% for the bonds and 5.08% for the stocks. And some of you are like, Philip, I don't even understand what that means. I know it's a big gap, but what does that actually mean? I said, I'm glad you asked. I actually put in the calculation. I said, okay, so if you invested $500,000 over a 20-year period of time and you earned that after tax, after inflation return on bonds number, I'll calculate it, the 1.24%, your 100% bond portfolio in 20 years would have 639000 of buying power. 639754 to be exact on my calculations. That means you're, you earned about $139,000 in, in, in purchasing power, increased purchasing power over 20 years. Okay, it's more than what you had. If you put it in that stock portfolio, in a 100% stock portfolio, your purchasing power went up one million three hundred forty-seven thousand dollars, forty-seven and eleven dollars. Let me repeat that: one million three hundred forty-seven thousand dollars, basically. So, meaning you earned an additional roughly eight hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars of purchasing power on your money, right? Let me say it a different way: the stock portfolio gave you seven hundred thousand dollars more purchasing power than the bond portfolio. Now, now you, now you tell me, twenty years from now. What's more safer? You know, less purchasing power or more, right? It's more. But governments for 5,000 years have done the same thing. They've gotten bigger to protect power. They spent more money. It deflates the currency. Like taxes is not even a big issue. Inflation is the biggest issue because inflation kills people who, inflation really is a, hurts more the everyday person. The every, Because think of it. What do most people who are lower income have? They have pension plans. They like to put their money in CDs, savings accounts, because they, they aren't well educated about money. And what gets hurt the most in inflation? Like fixed income assets. So now you're understanding why the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor because of inflation, mostly. Because the people who are who are not investors and are only savers and really don't have any investments at all, like inflation crushes them. It's a complex topic for me to explain and because that's the case, a lot of folks just don't get it. And they think that safety is putting money in CDs or safety is putting money in annuities or safe in, in fixed annuities. And they think that safety is cash or bonds. It's not safe. That's actually the, the, the worst place to put your money because the government is, is going to be what it's going to be. And, and again, like I mentioned in the media, it's not a bad thing. It's understanding intentions. It's natural for people in power to want to stay in power. That's natural. That's a logical human reasoning. It hadn't changed in 5,000 years of the history that we looked at, and it's probably not going to change over the next 5,000 years. But it, but what it means is if you understand it, then you can navigate it, and you can actually use it to make money over time by allocating your money appropriately. So that's why I titled this, How the Government Steals Your Money. It's really inflation. Taxes is a big part of it, but inflation is the biggest part. And so make sure you include those in your planning. Tax planning, making sure you got the right investment buckets for tax purposes and making sure that you're not letting inflation destroy your money over time. So last part, here's how I put it all together in an investment process, right? So I guess I'll title it 
putting it all together in your investment process. So you start with a plan. You figure out what your goal is, how much you need to reach your goal, what your current resources are, and you map out what needs to be done from how much you have to save, what your type of portfolio is going to be, whether it's aggressive, moderate, conservative. And it might be different portfolios for different goals, but you create the actual plan. And then the next thing you do is figure out the account types. Is it going to be a Roth, a 401k, a brokerage account, right? Combination of all those. And you do the math on the taxes because I'll do a plan A and a plan B. And I literally did plan last week. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast episode where, you know, one plan paid like close to a million dollars more in taxes than the other plan that I recommended. Uh, and it was just a shift of switching money from one type of an account to another type of an account uh, from a tax perspective. So the type of accounts matter. And then investments, S- figure out what type of an investment you use. I'm a fan of exchange traded funds or ETFs for a whole lot of reasons. But basically, going back to what I was saying before, if you focus on the big picture and you get the economic picture right and then you diversify, ETF, you can buy a basket of whatever types of assets you want. You can buy a basket of stocks, a basket of bonds, a basket of small cap stocks, a basket of U.S. stocks, a basket of commodities, a basket of gold, a basket of... Heck, you can even buy... It's an ETF that owns Bitcoin. And so with an ETF, and I like that over mutual funds because it's low cost, right? Mutual funds, you pay more because for the privilege of the portfolio manager to pick the best. And I'm like, listen, I already said selection and timing is not what it's about. It's about the big picture. So get the ETF. It's low cost. Um, It it trades throughout the day as well. And you can get the basket you need to build the portfolio. So that's why I like ETFs as the building blocks, core building blocks of my investment portfolios. And then the strategy is next. Strategy is how much you diversify, what's the spectrum, right? The more you diversify, the safer, but the lower the the return, the less you diversify, you know, the more you can potentially make, but the more you can get ruined. So figure out that art for your plan. Match your stock bond asset mix with your plan. Pay attention to the economy, right? All that's in the same type of soup to build the strategy, how, which is basically like how much money you put in different asset classes. And then manage your emotions. Have faith in the future that things will work out because they have historically, be patient and stay disciplined. And that's how you build a good investment strategy, folks. I know this was super nerd. I tested the idea out of going a little bit more nerdy than normal. I hope that I kept it big picture and entertaining somewhat, but I wanted to give some more meat around the bones for how to build a strategy for the people that were looking for some more meat. And I'm also having a webinar. I'm doing webinars weekly. Matter of fact, what you ought to do, instead of me telling you one specific webinar, if you just go to StonehillWealthManagement.com, on the front page when you pull up, I'll have my next webinar on it. So StonehillWealthManagement.com, go to the front page, and you can click a link to go to my next webinar. I'm doing one every single week to educate folks about what's going on. It doesn't cost anything. It's free. You can sign up and check out the, the webinar. And if you're interested in having a review of your portfolio for what's going on, just go to stonehillwealthmanagement.com forward slash talk and um, we can book a time to review your portfolio and what's going on, what you got going on there. Thank y'all for spending time with me and be safe. Enjoy your quarantine. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. 
Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.